0: Welcome to Season 5, Episode 4 of The Modern Extractor. I'm your host, Jason Showard, and I work professionally in the cannabis extraction field. This podcast normally focuses on the processes, equipment, and science found inside a cannabis extraction laboratory. However, this week and last week, we've been covering some slightly different subject matter. More on that in a minute. If you guys are finding value in the show, I'd really appreciate it if you'd be so kind as to leave me a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. The reviews really do help me out. They help me show up higher in the search results on Google, and they keep the great guests coming for future episodes. Thanks in advance. I'm very proud to announce that I've recently partnered with EcoGreen Industries. They're a wonderful nationwide supplier of high-quality extraction solvents, extraction-grade gas blends, and lab consumables. I personally used them as my ethanol supplier when I was running my lab, and they really are a class act. They're closer to the source than many of the other solvent suppliers out there and they've been in the high volume and wholesale game for some time now. Because of the volumes of the solvents and the gases they're moving, their pricing is always super competitive and they have great logistics nationwide. Their customer service is amazing and you get a human who actually cares about your order and is willing to work with you every time you call. So next time you need some high quality solvents or extraction grade gas in your lab, give EGI a buzz and see for yourself. Use promo code MODX M-O-D-E-X online or mention the Modern Extractor on the phone and we'll get you hooked up with 10% off of your first order and I'll earn a few bucks from each purchase to help keep the lights on over here at Modern Extractor Studios. I've personally used EcoGreen's products, done a ton of business with them over the years, and it's a company that I'm happy to attach my reputation to. You guys can check them out online at ecogreenindustries.com or give them a call at 530-378-4443. If you do place an order with this promo code, shoot me an email, jason at modernextractor.com. I'd be happy to return the favor any way that I can, from a quick chat about process optimization to helping connect you to folks in my network that may be great contacts for whatever you're trying to accomplish. Last week on the show, we talked to Dinkelberg, founder of Bat Country Cultures and expert mycologist, about the science of mushroom breeding and cultivation. This week, he's back for round two with today's discussion focused on mushroom extraction. Since recording this part of the interview, he actually fine-tuned his process a little bit and requested that we record an update. I decided to leave the original recording untouched and add the update in at the end so you can hear the evolution of his processes. So the information that he gives you during the interview will be updated at the end, so make sure to stick around and hear it all. As I said last week, I met Dinkelberg at the Extraction Expo in Los Angeles, where he had a couple different speaking engagements, all focused on the science surrounding mushrooms. After having a chance to talk to him a bit, I had to have him on the show. So let's jump back into part two of the long interview I recorded with master mycologist and founder of Backcountry Cultures, Dinkelberg. Dinkelberg. A lot of the extractors that I talk to that are getting into extraction of mushrooms are very specifically trying to maintain the psilocybin content and not dephosphorylize it or dephosphorylate it into psilocin. If it comes on stronger and faster and it is a shorter experience, It seems to me that there would be a bigger market for psilocybin as opposed to psilocybin. Now, why do you think that there is a uh, a desire to maintain the psilocybin content?
1: I feel like those reasons would be purely from a stability standpoint. Psilocybin seems to be, when extracted properly, it it seems to be more shelf stable than psilocybin, especially in extracts and. Um, products that use the extract. With isolates of silicin, they pretty much need to be salted. They're a zitter ionic compound, meaning that you can salt them, like make them like a hydrochloride or make them an acetate or a fumaric salt. That That's getting a little bit more into the chemistry side beyond just extraction. But to do that to silicin, you would make it more stable. Um, a lot of guys do don't have the capability to isolate psilocin. They are just extracting psilocybin because that's the most stable. They're just trying to make a product that is shelf stable and stays shelf stable. They're also trying to make a product that feels like the mushroom that they extracted it from. So they're trying to keep the profile similar to what they extracted from, much like you would with cannabis to begin with.
0: Yeah. Trying to keep that whole like terpene profile similar to that of the plant that it came out of. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So do you think that there's a difference in effect as far as, like I've, I've heard people talk about, um, more visuals or less visuals based on the relationship between the psilocybin, the psilocin, the, uh, Bay and the Norbay Uh, what do you think about that whole concept? Um, I've definitely had more visual trips, and then I've definitely had more mental
1: or body-heavy trips. I feel like those are more in relation to the flavonoids than the compound itself. I'm, I'm talking about the um, depressant effects that you might get through certain trips. I feel like those would be more related to the flavonoids of the mushroom, which you would see in what we would call like a full-spectrum extract that you know preserves those. With the visuals, I, I, I haven't had anything like acid. like th- that. I know that sounds like it, that came out of Left Park, but a psychedelic visual off of mushrooms is never going to feel like a psychedelic visual off of another compound. I believe the visualness um, and the variety that we're seeing between strain to strain is more based upon what tertiary products and secondary products that mushroom is producing that we're extracting. Um, Than the exact relation of psilocybin to psilocin to baocystin to norbaocystin.
0: Gotcha. So there's there's a whole world here that we are a not up that to speed we, on.
1: Yeah, we the testing's really not there yet. We we're just barely getting standards for the main alkaloids. We still need to figure out the flavonoid profiles. We still need to. There's a lot to do here.
0: Well, that's exciting. I mean, it's uh, that was what drew me to the cannabis industry when I jumped in, which you know really wasn't even all that long ago. It was late 2017, but oh. there was so much work to be done still, uh, and I was late to the game on really trying to understand what's going on. And so that's that's the exciting part, man. Like when you're in the on the cusp of an industry that's still figuring itself out, it's it's fun to go to work especially if you get to participate in it.
1: Yeah, I, I I love the work I do, and I feel blessed because of it.
0: Right on. So before we get into extraction, uh, we touched briefly on what's actually happening inside your brain chemistry to cause these effects. Uh, do you feel like you have fully explained what's going on in there with the explanation that you've given so far, or is there anything that you'd like to add to that? Um. I would add
1: to that um, from person to person, the difference in trip um, versus like how the mushroom affects one individual to the next could be widely related to the, the metabolism of the individual person. There's a specific phosphatase that the liver produces and there are actually biological markers that you can get tested for that will let like your doctor when we're down the line and, we have doctors prescribing and sitting in on therapies with the uh, psilocybin. Um, But it'll give doctors a way to prescribe more accurately dosages. It'll take a look at the biological markers of how you produce your enzymes and how you metabolize it and how fast you can metabolize it. And then it'll allow doctors to fine tune. Fortunately, we're not in the world of completely clinical yet, but we're there, we're getting close.
0: We are certainly making some huge strides way faster than we did with cannabis. Yes. While we're on the topic of doctors and clinicians and clinical use for all this stuff, what do you think about the case for medicinal mushrooms? You know, a lot of folks out there on the opposition side of things are going to claim that this is a recreational drug that gets you high out of your mind where you're seeing things and the world changes and that people do that for fun and that that is not something that is beneficial to society or to the individual taking it and all of this. Well, that's the opposition. I think that there's a huge subset of people that think that this is incredibly powerful for working your own life out and understanding a lot about the way your brain works and the way you interact with society and the web, the mycelial web that you live in with your own personal network. So uh, without getting uh, too philosophical on that for myself, what's your take on the medicinal application of these mushrooms and what do you know about what they can do?
1: With medicinal usage, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of microdosing and um a few therapies or clinics that specialize in um, administering a stronger than a microdose in-house and then tripsitting you throughout the entirety of your experience. Is that exactly how I want to see the market go? Not exactly. I I I would like to be able to see the market go to a way of microdosing, but have the micros be sold in like Please don't say
0: gas stations.
1: <laughs> no. With the micros, I would like to see them go the direction of they're individually dosed as micros, but maybe the pack is the size of um, like an eighth or maybe five grams because in the mushroom community, five grams is like a, it's a milestone within the community. People are like, oh, I took five grams. I lost my ego and I talked to the wall and- it was a great experience and I've changed my life because of it. That might sound crazy, but like some people come back off of five grams saying stuff like that and they're like, it's, it was the most beautiful thing. What does that mean for society? I feel like it needs to be treated a little bit more like alcohol than cannabis. Um,
0: yeah, I'd agree with that. It, it's definitely needs to have some caution behind it. A five gram sounds terrifying to me.
1: Oh Yeah. At one point, at one point I was a psychonaut and I was doing a lot and yeah, I just, I can't do that anymore. I top out at like two grams um, and that's like my dose, but there was a point where I could do like 14 and. That's a lot of mushrooms. Be semi okay. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. But a lot of these things, especially with mushrooms, they're. They're an introspective drug. They're very they make you look inward. And I feel like that might be the saving grace for mushrooms. I it's not a party drug. People don't go out and be like, yo, let's go take an eighth of mushrooms and go out. If if you do that, like you're you're not gonna be able to function. Like and people are gonna realize that very quickly, too. It, it, it's like when you take a psychedelic, if you take very large doses. It, it, it'll it put you on your face. Like you'll, you'll not, probably not even be able to leave the house. So I think we'll f- find issues of people doing mushrooms out and about, but we won't really have any issues of people doing mushrooms in a clinic or in a home setting and then venturing out. I just don't see that happening.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. They tend, you know, the, the experience behind them tends to kind of drive you to want what you should want if you're Mm -hmm. if you're willing to listen you tend to end up in the right place unless something just catastrophically wrong happens yeah
1: exactly i i think a lot of it too is going to be education um it's a new drug i mean it's not a new drug but societally it's becoming more prominent and a lot of people are encountering it for the first time it's there needs to be a little bit of education that goes along with it um especially with like
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, we've been consuming it for thousands of years. It's not a; it's certainly not a new drug, but it is uh, newly decriminalized. But uh, you were talking about microdosing earlier, mm-hmm. and that's something that that you hear all the time. It's probably the biggest buzzword associated with mushrooms at the moment. Let's dive into that a little bit. Talk to me about what a microdose actually looks like and uh okay. and, and what that actually means in relation to the amount of the actives that you're consuming because every strain is going to be different it's much like cannabis where this strain is 30% THC and has been bred for that and then on the flip side there's another strain that may be way lower in THC percentage but you know has been bred for a great terpene profile or something to that effect i'd imagine the mushroom world is going down a very similar path there but when you start talking about your amount of consumption in grams of a final product, it's going to become very dependent on what that final product is that you're making these decisions based on. Absolutely. Um, for reference, I usually
1: like to estimate on fruit um, half a percentage to 0.7% total alkaloid content. Um, that only being because that's what you're going to run into in the general pu- public right now. Um, I I think the highest tested one uh, in the last psilocybin cup was only like 1.1, maybe 1.3 total alkaloid content. That was bred specifically for that number. Um, Microdosing is going to be a little bit different for each person just based upon how they metabolize psilocybin. Um, Generally speaking, a good place to start would be around 200 milligrams of fruit body. Assuming half a percent total alkaloid content that's on the weaker side of that fruit scale. Um, That microdose would have about one milligram of active component. And ideally that microdose is sub perceptual. That meaning that when you take it, you don't really feel any effects throughout the day. You don't feel like you're tripping. You might feel a little elevated. You might be able to hold focus on a task for a little bit longer, but you're not you're not seeing breathing walls. You're not seeing like the edges of the wall stick out. Sometimes, like you have that high edge acuity where shadows look deeper. Um, you're, you're not going to f- experience any of those borderline perceptual effects. Ideally, on a microdose, some people, some people like a mini. It's what I call a microdose that you can feel. Um, that usually is around 250 milligrams of fruit to 300 milligrams of fruit with the total alkaloid content being at half a percent you're looking at one and a quarter milligrams or one and a half milligrams at that dosage but all that is is a microdose that you feel a little bit more you feel it in your body you might feel um a little bit um better headspace for problem solving or pattern recognition um I I tend to see um, a lot of patients preferring a dose they can actually feel when they say they're taking a a micro. I put that in air quotes because if you feel it, it's by definition not a micro. So micro, a lot of people like to feel it, and it's usually around that mini dose instead of that micro dose.
0: One of the biggest things that I think helped cannabis come along as well as it has in the recent years, was the ability to get on the same page as far as our vernacular and the nomenclature surrounding it. That's a big part. So things simple as this, micro versus mini, you know, really, as long as we start to get on more of the same page, it will help things become more normalized and I think advance the cause a little bit faster.
1: Definitely, I... (sighs) I even had this experience once where this man, this man, this guy at a conference offered a micro, but it ended up being 500 milligrams. And that was not, that's not a micro by any stretch. So I'm at this conference off of 500 milligrams, like seeing patterns in the carpet because at a threshold dose like that, that's what I was seeing. It was just, I was getting stuck and like wandering and like at that dose, you you start to get like... A little bit perceptual effects. You get some mental delay. It's just, it's good to have. You're right. This vernacular that's kind of uh, common ground.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's no good at all, man. You're at a conference trying to conduct yourself professionally and not come off like some psychonaut, and then you end up a lot more than microed. Oh yeah, it happens. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, now that we've got that cleared up, I'd like to venture into the world of extraction a little bit. So, you know, the stuff's been around for a long time. Everybody knows that they can eat the fruiting body and get an effect. There's all kinds of products now that it has become decriminalized in uh, some of these different places. So they're formulating. And now we've moved on to a whole new level, much different than just eating the fruiting bodies, which is very easy to understand what your intake is some of these formulated products are using basically just fruiting bodies that have been dried and ground up and now are being added into say chocolates or I don't know if they're making gummies like that or not. They are. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure they're making everything out there at the moment. Um, Uh, Yeah. So now that we're formulating with these, it seems like a little bit of a slippery slope because at this rate, there are Folks that are formulating for the black market that really aren't that careful with dosing and whatever's on the container doesn't necessarily mean what it is. So there's Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a red flag there for me. And then as you advance it further down where I think this is headed, which is being able to buy a product on the shelf from a brand that you trust that you know is taking care of this stuff. I would imagine that what makes the most sense for them is not to just be grinding up fruiting bodies, but to extract the actives and then use that for their formulations. As far as that goes, would you agree that that is kind of where this is heading? Or do you think that there's a case for these trusted brands to also be grinding up fruiting bodies?
1: I, it's it's going to go the way of everyone doing extracts all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Um, it, it gets the fruit bodies out of gummies. It gets the fruit bodies, yeah. hopefully, out of chocolates. Um, that's going to take a little bit of work. Um, but yeah, I'm um, sorry. What was the question? I,
0: oh, I rambled for a long time and then asked you a question at the end that was semi-pertinent to my ramble. <laughs> um, <laughs> but basically, do you think it's going to go the direction of, of extracts? And it sounds like the answer to that is a yes.
1: Yes, so I I do feel like everything is going to go the way of extraction. Um, It's better for the end user. You're not dealing with all that mushroom chitin. That's the uh, armored cell wall body of the mushroom um, that usually causes stomach upset. Um, You're not dealing with that in your stomach. And so that's just like another thing that makes the trip more enjoyable when you're not doing it. Um, off of the fruit body alone, but an extract.
0: Okay. Now with extraction, there are a variety of methods that you can use to do it. I think which one you choose probably has a lot to do with what your end goal is, very similar to cannabis extraction. So that said... The arguments that I've heard against extracting are that you're going to have some loss and you're going to lose something important that is inside this mushroom, the way nature intended it, and you're going to process it and lose some aspect of it. And I hear that argument. You know, there's a lot that we don't know about this at the moment. So we may be losing something that we're unaware of. So I hear that. I am an extractor. I love the idea of purification and isolation and all of this. So, you know, the, the, the nerd in me wants to get it as pure as I can. Uh, What's your take on whether we have losses and, and whether it's a good idea to extract. So each step of the way
1: you're losing something, right? So if you go from fruit body to like, a more refined crude extract you're losing the mushroom body you know you if you go from the like refined crude extract to an isolation you're losing all the natural sugars uh that the mushroom produces the flavonoids um probably some heavier terpenoids because the extracts still smell pretty mushroomy um you're losing something at every step. It's gonna be up to the formulator um, to decide how how raw they want to keep their product um, And honestly, I like to keep a, an extract full spectrum um, but winterized so we're removing lipids um, just because uh, that's what I've gotten the best feedback off of. Uh, I've been told like that really encapsulates the strain that it was extracted from. Um, I I would fear going to isolation would lose the strain specificness of the extract.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: But as far as going from fruit body to like a more winterized crude, you're losing the mushroom body, which causes discomfort in patients. And then you're going to be refining out a lot of waxes and lipids along the way. Um, other than that, you're keeping what the mushroom has to offer. Your your the yields are pretty yieldy is what I'm saying.
0: Understood. Well let's talk about the different ways you can go about extracting and the different choices that you'd make based on on what you want to do in the end. So we'll start with what the different approaches to extraction are. So what would be like the main ways people would go about doing this? Okay. Um so we're gonna have probably three main ways
1: you're gonna see most mushroom extraction labs set up. Um, you're gonna see Soxhlet extraction, and I'll get into that in a second. Uh, and then you're gonna see two versions of ultrasonic extraction. Uh, you'll probably see ultrasonic bath sonication, and then you'll probably see uh, ultrasonic homogenization. Um, so let me get to the Soxhlet. Uh, the soxlit is a glass apparatus um, that you put material in. Um, So imagine a material column, um, and below that material column you have boiling solvent in a flask. Uh, In that flask, the boiling solvent travels up through a tube to the right and into the top of that chamber filled with material. Um, On top of that material chamber, there's a condenser. So the evaporation that comes up through that tube condenses and then drips onto the material. When that center chamber gets completely filled, there is another smaller tube that siphons off the entire apparatus back into the solvent. So it's like this giant closed loop made out of glass um, that's continually running. The objective there is to continually wash your product until there's no more that you can extract from it. Um, The caveat with that, though, is it's a hot extraction, so in your refining steps, you're going to be refining out a lot more waxes and lipids. The next option would be ultrasonic bath. With that, you're loading your material and your solvent into an ultrasonic bath, you're agitating it, and you're letting the bath just run. Um, So the thought there is that over a few successive washes, you get the majority of your goodies, because the sonication breaks the cell walls, allowing it to be picked up by your solvent. And then the ultrasonic homogenizer is basically that, but on steroids, it's putting the ultrasonic horn directly into the solution and then using that to uh, lyse the cell walls and then extract the product.
0: Sounds like much more of an extract-all approach where you're going to have to do significant post-processing.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: you would. Uh,
1: less so with the room temperature methods, like the ultrasonic homogenizer. The ultrasonic bath still tends to work its way up in temp when it's running. But yeah, you're you're not wrong for the most part. It's a crude extraction that you'll have to clean up later.
0: Understood. Well, you mentioned solvents a bunch of times throughout that explanation. Uh, let's get into solvent choices. So I've seen wide range what are what are the ones that are you would consider to be the main options here um the main
1: options are going to be alcohol and aqueous alcohol blends psilocybin and psilocin are polar molecules they get extracted quite well with methanol and aqueous ethanol it also works quite well with methanol ethanol blends but Yeah, how you want your end product and what you're doing with your end product usually dictates what solvent you're extracting with. Just like cannabis. Just like cannabis. Um, When you extract with an aqueous alcohol, so we're talking um, just like 170 proof ethanol, um, you usually co-extract the phosphatases. So a phosphatase is a enzyme that breaks down the phosphoryl grouping of the psilocybin, turning it into psilocin. Caveat is silicin is not super stable in aqueous solutions, so it even breaks down further. So if you're going to be extracting with aqueous alcohol, you're going to want to pull it to a dry state as soon as possible. You're definitely working against the clock on that. If you're working with methanol, you obviously have like, the issues of working with methanol, a toxic solvent, you know, you have to worry about fumes and splashes. And I do prefer working with methanol and ethanol. However, Um, yields seem to be good. And you're basically getting the same pool that an aqueous uh, ethanol pool would get. But uh, instead of water, you're using methanol. And that seems to denature the uh, enzymes that cause breakdown.
0: So, if you're using a methanol ethanol blend, what kind of percentages are we talking here? Um,
1: total yield off the biomass, so keep in mind this is like a winterized crude end product I'm weighing out. It's going to be about 20 to 25% yield off the biomass, usually about 3 to 5% total alkaloid just depending on what strain was run as input.
0: Okay. Uh, but as far as the actual blend of the methanol and the ethanol, like what percentage methanol to what percentage ethanol are these, uh, is, is like an ideal blend in this scenario?
1: So I usually use like a 70-30% blend, so 70% ethanol, 30% methanol. That usually gets me a good pool of both the psilocybin and the psilocin.
0: Okay. So now each of these are working Differently. What you described earlier was that the methanol is going to act similar to the water in this, uh, in the previous case, except for it's going to be more gentle on the compounds than the water would be. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: So, the reason why you use an alcohol blend is that you get a better
0: pull on
1: both compounds. The methanol seems to pull the psilocybin a little bit better. Um, and the Ethanol seems to pull the silicin a little bit better. The reason for using the methanol is to simply replace the water. When you're adding the methanol, doing a completely anhydrous extraction seems to denature the phosphatase, which would prevent the breakdown of psilocybin into silicin, which then would degrade further um, in solutions. It's just to prevent that. So when you're using an anhydrous alcohol blend, you're basically killing off that enzyme You're denaturing it. You're rendering it useless to give your product more stability.
0: Okay. Now, uh, you mentioned earlier that with Silicin, there are methods to be used to make it more stable, turning it into a salt or, you know anything in that respect. Let's say that you're trying to use those on this mix of psilocybin and psilocin that is coming out of this extraction process. How does that uh, process affect your psilocybin that you've extracted? So
1: when you're extracting and you're past the step of winterization and you have a crude, like a refined crude extract, to purify it further to get these individual compounds, psilocybin and psilocin, you would have to purify it by way of chromatography. And then with chromatography, there's quite a few methods. There's running columns of chromatography. There's running chromatography that runs liquid against other liquid to isolate. There are multiple ways to run chromatography. But once you have those isolated compounds, if you want to convert from one to the other, um, heat and acid will convert psilocybin to psilicin, but in combination. You can't have one without the other. So if you reflux in an acid, say like vinegar, you'll convert it over to psilicin, which then seems to have more stability. I'm not sure if boiling acid salts the product, but I do know that psilocybin can't be salted while psilicin can, and that the salted psilicin is less susceptible to uh, further breakdown by way of oxidation.
0: Okay, so if if I've got this uh, this product that I just extracted without having to go all the way through to separate the psilocybin and the psilocin, and I've just got this more full spectrum product that I just extracted using the Soxhlet method, and I want to do something to preserve my psilocin, but I don't want to go as far as separating the two compounds from each other. Is there something there that I can do to, uh, to prevent the further degradation of the silicin. The
1: silicin would be secure within the crystalline structure of the extract. So when you're dealing with this extract, you're going to find that when you pull a certain level of moisture out of it, you're dealing with a sugar structure. So that means you can manipulate it under vacuum, certain ways like you might candy making. So That also allows you to get certain consistencies that you might find in cannabis. You can pull the extract into like a shatter is what I'm getting at. And that shatter is basically a giant sugar crystal with your actives intertwined in it. That in itself leads to some stability for the silicin and the less less stable compounds.
0: Okay.
1: If you want... To experience a a trip with more psilocin than psilocybin, what you can do is take that extract and um, add acid to it, just like citric acid, you know, lemon. Um, You can add lemon, and that makes the trip more intense. People call that lemon tech. You can also do that with dry fruit bodies, allowing the dry fruit bodies to soak in lemon. That converts the psilocybin to psilocin, which makes the trip... Stronger and shorter and more condensed, like it would a silicin trip. But with that being said, if you take the extract and you convert it with lemon or citric acid, you'll have more of a silicin trip. But that is for right before consumption because I don't feel those silicin products have much of a shelf life when they're in a just sitting in acid. <laughs> no, in like a in like a gummy. So, the in an environment where they have a little bit of moisture, because we're dealing with a very hydrophilic sugar, so once that sugar starts to absorb moisture, if you extracted with aqueous ethanol, it's going to start breaking down again, because you'll have co-extracted that phosphatase. So, if you keep that sugar as dry as possible, you'll be good. Issue is, when you start formulating it, if you didn't neutralize that phosphatase, it'll cause breakdown into silicin, and then even further. So... It's just better to go with the psilocybin extractions and keep it as psilocybin for stability.
0: Understood. Um, so we have covered the sockslip method. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the other extraction methods. For sure. With the ultrasonic bath, it's
1: going to be much more similar to large-scale ethanol operations in cannabis, where you're... You have bags of biomass material and you're rotating them in and out of like a bath of solvent. And then you can either run that through membrane if you're playing with really big equipments or you can filter and evaporate and just do successive washes like how the soxlit would automate it, but just on a larger scale with ultrasonic assistance.
0: So if we're talking bags of biomass into a bath of solvent, what solvent is that typically in the, uh, in the ultrasonic?
1: Um, That's a mixture of 50, 50 methanol ethanol. That's um, a little bit different than the optimal one, but I prefer the higher ratio of methanol just because of the ratios that you're adding the biomass to the volume of solvent. Um, Usually, it's good to be at a one to three ratio because of that you're going to get more saturated with the volume that you're working with quicker which means you're going to have to switch out your solvent more frequently meaning that your solvent will only be able to pick up x amount of actives per wash um and it's pretty reliable you'll be able to know like oh, I got 15% back off this first wash. I can probably expect 5% on the next wash and then maybe another 2 or 3% final pull on the third wash. So there's diminishing returns, but you're batching it in a tub of ethanol, methanol.
0: So just to clarify here, we're taking a tub of ethanol, methanol that is being sonicated. Uh, we're going to drop a bag of biomass into that. We're going to leave it for ballpark how long? Um, first wash, I typically do 90
1: minutes to two hours and then second wash, 60 minutes, third wash, 60 minutes. If there's a fourth wash, it'll be quick, like 30 minutes.
0: Understood. So now we're going to put it in there for, let's say 90 minutes. Now, after this 90 minutes, we're going to take the bag of biomass out of the tub Mm -hmm. and, Now we've got a tub full of solvent that has dissolved goodies that we're looking for that Mm -hmm. are in that. Are you taking and putting a fresh bag of biomass in that solvent as is because there's more room as far as solubility goes, or are you emptying that and sending that off to solvent recovery and then using a fresh batch of solvent to rewash the same wet bag that we just washed? What's the process like there? Uh, We're going to be sending the
1: liquid off to get filtered and sent to solvent recovery. From there, we're going to wash that wet bag with fresh solvent again. Um, And we're going to switch out the solvent for three washes, essentially.
0: Understood. So then all of that will get filtered, all go to solvent recovery. That batch of uh, biomass that was in the extraction bag is now spent? Yep. And then move on to, to just repeating the process. So if rather than go through repeating the process, I think we all know what that looks like. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the filtration and the solvent recovery side of things. So what's a good filter? Um,
1: I just do a paper filter. Nothing fancy. I'm, you know, five liter Buchner filter, mm-hmm. maybe 10, depending on scale. You don't need anything crazy. I like to do two micron, three micron, um, the, the slow filters, I should say. But other than that, if, if it needs filtration aid, like if you, if you processed like a really spored up batch of fruit, uh, into extract and you need to filter, more spores, uh, you can always, uh, use diatomaceous earth and do like a filter patty. And if you need, you know, if you need more filter capability, but understood, um, Usually two to three micron gets the majority of the bio, well, it gets all the biomass out.
0: So this filter conversation actually alerted me to the fact that I skipped a very important step in the beginning, which Mm -hmm. is uh, the biomass prep before extraction. So what are you going to do? You have fruiting bodies, what state do you want them in for extraction? I know in the cannabis world, there's a huge range from CO2 needing to be ground up really fine to, you know, ethanol wanting to to be at a you know quarter inch mill size or so to uh, with hydrocarbons fresh frozen that's just smashed up a little bit is fine. So what are we looking at here in these different extraction methods and what your material prep looks like? Um, for both the ultrasonic methods, you're really looking for um,
1: powdered material. Um, that that's just because cell wall breakage. You're you're looking to break as many cell walls as possible, and then pick it up, pick up the actives with the solvent. With the Soxhlet method, I would do more of a shredded texture, just so that the Soxhlet still functions the right way, and it still siphons out like it's supposed to yeah i find with the socks lit, if you're um too powdered on your material the material itself acts as like a sponge and like keeps the solvent in that main column it's just better to have shredded with the uh, socks lit but powdered for the rest
0: all right so that leads me back into filtration I guess you're going to have a very fine mesh on your uh, on your extraction bag if you've got powdered material in there. Mm-hmm. So then, back to filtration, you are Buchner filtering. You're going to catch essentially any biomass that has slipped through on your filter. The last thing you're going to want to do is clog your filter. So I guess your your mill size and your uh, your micron size of your extraction bag are uh, are pretty importantly correlated there.
1: Yeah. Um. I'm usually at like a 70 micron for that bag. And then uh, if like if I feel like a lot of material went through the bag, I'll take it through a 25 and then through the three. But most of the time, I'm good to go from the 70 just to the three.
0: Gotcha. And I just realized I also forgot to ask you temperature on your, your sock slit method. What kind of temperature are you working with in that scenario?
1: The sock slit is typically run at a home scale and is on a mantle or a hot plate. And with the hot plates, you don't really have a specific temperature setting. You just get the bottom um, flask of solvent uh, refluxing. Um, Because of that, the, the temperature of that bottom flask doesn't really go above the boiling point of the solvent mix just because of evaporative cooling. So you're usually looking at the solvent flask being around probably like 75 degrees Celsius if you're working with an ethanol-methanol blend.
0: Okay. Uh, So let's say we are back to solvent. We've just finished filtration, and now we're going to solvent recovery. What is your desired means of solvent recovery while we've got these very fragile molecules mixed in with our solvent?
1: I really prefer rotovap. Um, When you're evaporating the methanol-ethanol blend, methanol and ethanol aren't missable. So they don't mix and form an azeotrope. They just evaporate at their respective, their their points um, in the rotovap. So the strange phenomenon happens when the quality of the solvent drops. Um, and I guess like the compounds and the sugar don't really like it. But there's a certain point during the evaporation process where all the sugars crash out and then will re- redissolve back in at a certain point and then crash out again. Cool. It, it's really cool to watch. The issue is you can't use any terribly upscaled evaporation methods. It kind of uh, keeps you out of using a falling film because, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. worried about getting that clogged. Um, I'm worried about using a spray dryer just because of the heat incorporated. I'd like to keep it, you know, cooler. Um, So that really just leaves you with roto evaporation.
0: And that's, that's what I'm using. Tried and true. Tried and true. So you've got your rotavap spinning around. You are evaporating the solvent. What kind of temperatures are we talking about on your bath?
1: Um, I usually rock it between thirty and forty. Um, thirty until I know a good portion of the methanol is out, and then I can crank it up. Um, I just don't want to blow methanol through a pump or anything like that. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, uh, usually evaporate around thirty with until the methanol's out, and then crank it up to about forty, sometimes forty-five uh, Celsius
0: on the water bath um, with some significant vacuum. I imagine as deep as vacuum as you could pull right? Yeah, yeah. Understood. Uh, with a with the standard vacuum pump. Yeah, I'm just
1: using a standard diaphragm for the for the rotovap. I'm not using a rotary vane or anything like that. But
0: yeah. Gotcha. So now we are there. Your solvent has been taken off. We know that the methanol came off first, mm-hmm. but I'd imagine that the methanol and the ethanol all end up in the same collection flask. They do. Uh, you're not trying to fraction that off. No. So solvent is gone. We've got, wh- what do you call it as done? I've heard techniques that are, you know, all the way down and you're scraping the roto ball, which does not sound like a fun process. And then I've heard other techniques of, uh, you know, a slurry. So w- what's your go-to here? I uh, slurry is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I tend to pour it,
1: um, when it's at like a honey texture. Um, so like the majority of it will come out of the flask and then, you know, you, you might have to, uh, scrape it a little bit, but it's not like you're picking dry material out of a flask. I'm not drying it completely. Um, from there to finish it, I would just pour it into slabs and then finish it in the oven.
0: Let's circle back to that solvent that we've collected in our collection flask on the of app. Now, we know we've got uh, methanol-ethanol blend, but this has just been through plant material and inevitably collected moisture. And we're using methanol and ethanol instead of ethanol and water because we want it to be completely anhydrous. So what is the next step there? Do you put it through like a molecular sieve of some sort?
1: Yeah, uh, with that, you would either have to refine it with a, a fractionating neck on a you would have to basically redistill it from scratch. You, you would have to collect the methanol fraction and then um, azeotrope it at 95 and then mole sieve the eighty or the 95. So there there is separation and removing water. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could also mole sieve it, but I, I tend to like to keep the um the ratios similar. So I like to start, especially on a smaller scale, um with fresh clean solvent each time um that's redistilled and then the ethanol is mole sieved. However, with the fractionating off the methanol and then the azeotrope of ethanol, um I I simply do that for repeatability in like the, the, testing aspect, the R and D aspect, um, for a practical standpoint, um, and practical operation. I, I don't see why using mole sieves on the alcohol blend wouldn't work just as fine
0: yeah it's one of those things where it sounds like it may not be as repeatable and as reusable as many times if you're mole saving because you're just knowing that you're skewing your ratio of methanol to ethanol mm-hmm. in an industrial application or in you know any kind of application at scale that may be acceptable for a few runs before you have to retire the solvent, but just you know it seems like something to be uh, conscious of that is happening in your process. Definitely.
1: If you've ever bought denatured ethanol, it's sometimes denatured with methanol. And then if you've worked with denatured ethanol, you know how easy it is for the denaturing to come out. And so if you're working with that, you just know more methanol is coming out than your ethanol. Like, especially if you're pulling vacuum a little too hard and you're vaporizing it or you pulling more to your cold trap than the other. Mm
0: -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Well, that makes sense. It sounds like if you're not equipped to recover these solvents, like it could be a a fairly wasteful process. And now you're not just dealing with ethanol anymore. That's your waste stream. You've got methanol mixed in, Mm -hmm. which uh, is a whole different way to handle that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And um, you're you're absolutely right. This entire process, the largest bottleneck is going to be solvent recovery every day.
0: Yeah, for always and forever on everything Mm -hmm. I've ever worked with, that is the bottleneck. But that's the name of the game, right? Mm -hmm. So that leads me to uh, an interesting question regarding membranes. You know, one of the things that, that folks are doing to reduce the bottleneck of solvent recovery from an evaporative standpoint in cannabis is to use membrane filtration, which is capable of doing these separations. Have you been exposed to or seen any membranes that are capable of separating the actives that we've extracted from the solvent?
1: I've heard murmurs of membrane uh, filtration used for this, um, but I haven't seen it personally. Um, However, I I think the proper setup would be to run it through a membrane that filters for molecular size first and then for solvent recovery next. I know a few guys were attempting to run it backwards but other than that it's about the information i can provide
0: understood it's uh that's what i love about this stuff man it's all so new and there's so many different ways to skin the cat as far as extraction and recovery and all this stuff goes oh so we're about to go through the same renaissance that we had with cannabis in this field where prior to this it was just Ice water and some mushrooms and a and a paddle making the uh, the old blue stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So then that leads to ultrasonic homogenization, uh, which you covered a little bit. Is that more or less the same process uh, of all of the post processing? Um,
1: Yeah. So the three processes I described for the initial extraction is simply that just the initial extraction. Um, the ultrasonic homogenizer kind of being king out of all three um, it's the most powerful it's the most efficient it's going to break the most cells Um, you're you're still in the same boat of switching out your solvent after every pulse um, or every um, set of pulses you do it's still a little bit of batch work if that makes sense
0: so you'd go about filtering or covering that all the same way. So it sounds like we've got that covered. Yep. Uh, a- another method of extraction that has come onto my radar recently is CO2. Do you know anything about the work with CO2 in extracting the actives? Um, I, yeah, I mean, it,
1: it would extract um, a crude. It would extract a crude much like how CO2 extracts a crude from cannabis. It's, it, you would have to remediate for- f- fats and waxes and lipids, um, the same that you would have to do with all these extraction methods. So actually, halfway through or a portion of the way through the solvent recovery portion, I actually like to crash the liquid. And doing that gets um, a good portion of the fats and the lipids out without using any sort of chemical solvent. So what I'll do is I'll typically extract a pound with 10... 15 liters of solvent and then condense that down to about two in those two liters of solvent after a night in the freezer you'll crash out a good portion of your fats and then running that over a, like a 25 micron filter or even um like building like a cotton filter that has like a little bit larger of a micron than that 25 fast filter to remove all your fats is the best way to winterize i've found
0: gotcha so you're going to take that out and put it in a freezer when it's halfway recovered
1: much more than halfway um it i like i said i typically extract with about 15 liters and then 15 liters per pound and then once it's down to about 2 liters is when i do the crash so a fraction a fraction of the initial volume
0: so then you've got this down to a 1 to 7, 1 to 8 ratio. Uh, very similar to what folks do in the cannabis world when they are going to redissolve and winterize. And now, you're going to bring that down to what temperature? Mm,
1: honestly, it, it doesn't need to get as low as cannabis. Um, using the methanol-ethanol blend and having it evaporate off or left with Pretty much just ethanol winterizing it. I would say temps get down to like negative 20, maybe negative 30. Nothing crazy deep.
0: So your standard chest freezer from Home Depot will do the trick. Exactly. Okay, gotcha. And how long do you keep it in that? Um, Like 12 hours overnight. Nothing crazy. Gotcha. Now you're going to take that from there and run it through your... Are you using a Buchner? Yeah. Okay. S- same same setup, Buchner filter. Gotcha. I guess you could probably use a lenticular if you were at scale in this scenario as well.
1: Yeah, if you're at scale, you can definitely push it through a lenticular.
0: uh I mean, the Buchner's great for a smaller scale for sure. I've seen uh, or... Buchners at
1: like yeah, I've seen them at like 20 liters still. There. Okay. Yeah,
0: people buy large Buchners. It's crazy. <laughs> So we're filtering off the fats and whatever else comes out with those. Now we've got a much cleaner extract that is still dissolved in our solvent. So where do you take it from here?
1: Uh, We just finish it off. Um, You evaporate it to that honey consistency in the rotovap. And then from there, you would pour it into your um, slabs and then finish it off in the oven. Finishing it off in the oven, you would just follow any other shatter SOP. Um, I would set the oven to around 80 Celsius. Um, it's a little bit hotter than what you would work with cannabis, obviously, but we're using, um, alcohols that need to be purged and not necessarily just butane or propane. So higher boiling points require higher temperature.
0: So then pull as deep vacuum as you can, obviously to, uh, really get this stuff clean and dry. Yeah,
1: pretty much. I I like to do the pull a muffin, stop pulling vacuum, but like don't release it. Let the muffin settle. And then you come back in an hour or two and flip it.
0: So you've got it in the oven, you're doing your muffin routine, and then you flip it. And then how long are you going to keep it at this 80 C temperature in total? I
1: usually like to do three or four flips spread an hour or two each. So total time in the oven is going to be like four to eight hours, just depending on the day and how
0: much extract I'm doing. Now, it sounds to me like this is the largest opportunity that we have come into contact with yet in regard to degradation of your psilocybin. Uh, What are your thoughts on that?
1: Psilocybin doesn't degradate to heat alone until it reaches about 150 C. So we do have a little bit of leeway to work, especially when we're working with the extract and it's inside a sugar structure to protect it a little bit. With it being a methanol-ethanol extract, with it being pretty much devoid of moisture, we're, we're not really running into too much degradation at this point. Um, you can even melt the sugars before before degradation. The, the the sugar melts at about 97 Celsius. And like I said before, you don't get psilocybin degradation due to heat alone until about 150 C. So even then you have 53 Celsius to work with.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. You only really have to worry about getting it to that temperature range when it's still... If it's an aqueous solution is what, what I would say is if it was a co-extraction with alcohol and water and it's still in alcohol and water, I would not bring it up to that temperature. But since we're messing with it where it's at like a heavy syrup, uh, pretty much just a sugar structure at this point, it's okay to bring it up to that temp
0: understood so now after it's all said and done and your time is complete and you pull these pans out of your vacuum oven what does the final product look like
1: um so until the product is totally cooled it's going to have a little bit of pull to it once it's cooled it's going to be exactly like shatter it's going to shatter it'll yeah well i mean it's going to be like shatter it'll shatter
0: <laughs> gotcha so what color is it typically
1: Um, it's usually like, it's an orange and like a bright orangey red. So it's probably very full of carotenoids and shouldn't be attempted to smoke, but, um, it it looks pretty, especially for a formulatable product for a, uh, orally consumed product. It's definitely cool to look at.
0: Awesome. That is, uh, the, the most extensive SOP that I have uh, have come across to get to anything uh, near this this consistency so this is uh, this is news to me it's exciting. Yeah. That said, if you've got a slab of mushroom shatter that you now would like to formulate with, uh, I would imagine that the first thing that you're going to want to do is send that in somewhere where you can get test results telling you what your uh, constituents are in that product. Exactly. You're going to want to be able to test for at least residual solvents and your total
1: alkaloid content. Um, some labs give you a panel breakdown of each alkaloid. Some give you psilocybin and psilocin. Um, some just, I want the full panel. Come on. Exactly. Exactly. Some labs even just give you psilocin, meaning that they convert everything over and then just read you the psilocin levels. So there's a little bit of lab shopping to do. And I, I, that term, that term means something else in cannabis, and I, I'm yes. not going to get into that. But at this stage in the mushroom game, it, you you need to look for the labs that are going to provide you the most information.
0: Yes, absolutely. Do you have anybody you'd like to plug for this scenario? Um, you know, what? I'm going to plug Oakland Hyphy because I've
1: had samples analyzed by them, um, and I I mean, I participated in the Psilocybin Cup, and they have a good testing method that gives back numbers that make sense
0: nice I'm, gl- I'm glad that that was your answer i actually just reached out to them uh to see if they wanted to be on the show pertaining to mushroom testing and mm-hmm. uh and how all that works so uh, mm-hmm. i'm glad we're on the same page there that makes me happy definitely well i think that that pretty much wraps up our extraction and finishing SOPs on this. Uh, I thank you for, for being uh, so thorough. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that we may have Uh, glanced over?
1: I definitely rambled a lot and you're going to have to cut some rambles at some point, but it's Uh, yeah. uh,
0: A bunch of good stuff though. You know, you get, you get the right guy in the room and you let him ramble and it's gold. Yeah. Just, (laughs) make me sound smart <laughs> <laughs> no problem what can we expect to see out of old dinkelberg in 2022 what what are the big plans
1: um so I am currently working to launch a website where I'll be able to offer therapeutic cultures for lack of a better term I currently already dabble with sterile media production um, but I'm just looking to expand into being able to offer genetics hopefully i'll be a part of some other upcoming projects but that's still on the down low
0: understood well so what are you personally most excited about regarding the future of mycology and psychedelics and this whole industry that you are very much on the forefront of
1: i'm excited about how quick it's opening up That in itself is going to really let the innovators shine. Right now, we have a lot of people competing in the same spaces in the mushroom industry. And I think the diversification of the marketplace is much needed. And I, I guess that's starting to come about, especially if we're talking extraction currently. But for a long, long while, it was just dried mushrooms and mushroom chocolate bars. And I'm just excited to get away from that.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm excited to see where things go if they are, you know, nurtured and treated correctly. This this whole industry has such a huge potential to be fouled by profiteers jumping on board the way things happened with cannabis. And I'm I'm very much hoping that people treat it right, and if they do treat it right, I think we are about to see a huge renaissance in the world of mental health and the world of, you know, just better understanding of where we're at on this, this planet that we are uh, all flying around the sun on. I definitely agree. Yeah. So if people want to get a hold of you, uh, what's the best way to reach out if they want to see if, if, uh, if your expertise can, can help them out in their projects.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I, operate by word of mouth um, as dinkelberg That is also on my handle on Instagram. On Instagram, I also operate Bat Country Cultures. And um, there is also an Etsy shop tied to Bat Country Cultures. We do sterile media preparation and culture expansion. So if you have any of those needs, I'd be happy to help
0: All right. Well, reach out to this man. He is clearly an authority on the subject and knows his way around the mushrooms. Dinkelberg, thank you so much for coming on the modern extractor and
1: thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. I've been excited about it ever since we first chatted about it at the, uh, at the expo. For sure.
1: Also, I just wanted to say, um, for your listeners, I'll throw a, uh, uh, coupon code up. Uh, It'll just be mod X and it'll be 10% off. Um,
0: Yeah. Fantastic. So M-O-D-E-X? Correct. All right. Well, you heard it here first. Go head up Dinkelberg. Since recording this part of the interview, he actually fine-tuned his process a little bit and requested that we record an update. Dinkelberg, welcome back to The Modern Extractor. Hi, how's it going? Hey, pretty good, man. So we uh, we recorded the, the first little bit or the first large bit of your interview about four months ago now. Uh, and since then, your process has changed a bit when it comes to extraction on mushrooms. So you actually reached out to me recently and said, hey, before you go to air with this episode of the podcast, I'd like to make some changes to what I had said. So just to set the scene a little bit. That's where we're at right now. Happy to have you back here to give me some updates.
1: Oh yeah. It's just like yeah, the process got more streamlined. My views on a couple of things I've I've said had like changed. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure the information I gave you is up to date, you know?
0: Yeah, well, this lag of uh, of air, which is actually kind of rare for this show, actually ended up working out. Uh, to, uh, to all of our advantages then in this scenario. Last I talked to you, I was in Los Angeles, and now I'm, uh, I'm recording this in a, uh, in a makeshift uh, little recording studio I built up in a hotel room in Spain. It's awesome. <laughs> it's probably scenic where you are. <laughs> yeah, not, not too bad at all. So let's, uh, let, let's jump into it. Tell me a little bit about the changes that, that you've made. Okay. Yeah. So
1: right off the bat – uh, instead of doing mixed solvent, I have changed to just doing a single solvent, just straight methanol. It's really easy to work with doing it that way. Um, you know, I don't have to worry about um, having the ethanol azeotrope coming off and then reseparating that. I can just distill the methanol off at a low enough temperature and have clean solvent again. It makes the workflow process more practical when you're like in the bulk of processing. I also think uh, SOXLIT is the way to go for scale, at least up until like about 25 pounds, you can make it out of, you know, a stainless apparatus. They do kegs. Um, I have built a keg sockslet That's pretty nice. It's like 50 liters for the solvent flask on the bottom and then a pretty large material column.
0: I think I saw pictures of that on your Instagram.
1: Yeah. I also posted a, a picture up onto the uh, future 4200 forum too, and that should still be up too. But yeah, okay. you can go check that out. Um, it's a beast. It's like nine feet tall. It, it's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, um, b- before I was like, you could use an ultrasonic bath and you know, that's good for like medium scale. Problem is that's a lot of methanol vapor everywhere. It, it gets to be dangerous kind of quick if you don't have good ventilated areas, not to mention it's a lot of work and a lot of solvent. It takes like 17 liters to fully extract just like one pound of mushrooms. So it's, a, it's like a ridiculous amount of solvent to rotovap off. And if you're not using a Soxhlet, you're not using that solvent efficiently. It, it's easier for the operator. It's more passive just to use a Soxhlet than to continuously wash in an ultrasonic bath. Or even like a centrifuge.
0: Gotcha. Let's, let's run through your process. So right now, we are going to switch over from a methanol-ethanol blend mm-hmm. to pure methanol. Is there any chemical reason other than the azeotrope that you decided to take that approach um
1: yeah it's more selective and it's also easier to uh, winterize out later on in the process um with the ethanol blend you have to take it a lot colder than the methanol blend or just the straight anhydrous methanol with the methanol you, you only really have to bring it down to like zero to get it to winterize really well um with the ethanol, you have to bring it down to like at least negative 20, which if not requires a deep freezer, requires, you know, a little bucket of dry ice. So
0: it's, it's just easier to work with the methanol in general. Okay. So we're going to use methanol. Mm-hmm. And then if we're going to use the the Soxhlet method, talk me through that part of the process.
1: Yeah. Um, so with the Soxhlet method, you're going to have the solvent in the bottom solvent flask going to have your material in the material column, which is above the solvent flask. And then above the material column, you have like a condenser so that when you're boiling the solvent on the bottom, the vapor travels up like a vapor pathway, hits the condenser and then drips onto your material. The socks looks really nice. It just allows for continual rewashing of the same material quite passively. You know, it's easy if you're like a one or two man team, you could just load it, walk away because it, it operates at atmosphere. It's not, you know, it's not pressurized. It's not like the scariest thing. If you're using a tabletop socks, like they only go up to about one pound in how much they can hold. Um, but if you build something out of stainless, you know, you can build something that does four, five, 25
0: pounds. It's
1: just all about
0: efficiency. Gotcha. So this one that you built that I saw pictures of with the keg, uh, it's like a standard extraction keg with a four-inch tri-clamp on top yep. and then a column that uh, that goes up from that. For this one, what can you uh, what can you fit in there uh, volume-wise? Uh,
1: so I can fit 50 liters of solvent and about 25 pounds of um, just biomass to get continuously extracted. So for the stainless ones, uh, for the stainless list, I've been running them like almost like how you'd passively run recovery on um, like a BHO system. So like a sous vide and water bath. Um, but since I'm boiling methanol at atmosphere, I've been setting it to about like 150, 160 Fahrenheit in the water bath. That seems to get the job done and doesn't cause too much uh, darkening of the extract. Basically, at this point, I have, you know, figured out the limits of what the actual compound can take. And now at this point, I'm just trying to get the extract to be nicer, you know, limit oxidation, try to avoid uh, pulling excess sugars and stuff like that the first time around. So even in these stainless socks, I have the ability to pull vacuum and have it cycle at like a lower temperature too, which is really nice, especially for color. Oh, with the keg socks lit, though. The keg, I got quite crafty with it. I uh, <laughs> has like an internal heating element a little PID controller. It's like all you have to do for that one is provide cold liquid to the chiller. It's nice. It's really nice. It's. I'm just. I'm really proud of myself on that one.
0: Yeah. So, are you using the little two uh, one and a half inch tri clamp on the bottom of the extraction keg for for the heating element? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. I like it. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So uh, now that you figured all of this out, let's say that there's somebody out there that uh, didn't feel like trying to to patch it together themselves. Are you uh, are, are you selling these systems?
1: Yeah, I am. I, I've had a couple of uh, inquiries come in, especially at that last uh, psychedelic conference. I talked about it, showed it off, and then people were like, oh, yeah, I need one of those. And so, you know, wherever there's a need,
0: I can definitely help out. All right. Get a couple of backcountry stamps on that stuff and you're off and running, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. Yep.
1: Oh, there's also another point I'd like to make too. Um, with the final process, before I was running with really weak pumps, I was running with like a two CFM, maybe two and a half CFM pump and a purge pot when we last talked. So I was just purging over a water bath, like old school shatter. Um, Mm -hmm. now I'm a little more upgraded. I I do have a vacuum oven so I can give you precise parameters. Yes, please. Yeah. I, you know what, those Oregon, um, regulations came out. So I've been kind of using that as a framework to rework my processes. So I've honestly, uh, I've been purging at 60, uh, 60 Celsius, which is about like one forty Fahrenheit and just pulling really deep vacuum. Um, you know, standard chatter processes. Um, I, I pour it pretty loose, and then once it gets up to temp, I and you know I have a, a cold trap attached to the vacuum oven. So I, mm-hmm. I, I pull out the rest of the moisture until it starts to muffin, and then once it does start to muffin, I, I stop the vac, and then let the uh, extract basically rest into that shatter shape. And then, you know, depending on how you pull vacuum and the, the temperature you're running at, y- you can honestly finish that extract up in probably about four or five hours and have it fully purged, and... You might be thinking, oh, uh, 60 Celsius is a little high for methanol purging. I'm not just trying to purge the methanol at this point. I'm trying to purge out all the moisture because I, any moisture in that final extract is is going to lead to degradation over time. Um,
0: gotcha. Which,
1: you know, is just what we're trying to avoid.
0: Yeah. So now a lot of these extracts that I've seen, have been rather susceptible to moisture in the air and going mm-hmm. from something that's a, a nice powder or a nice shatter-like consistency and when exposed to uh, air or left in a container that's not very well sealed, uh, kind of just turn into a, a goo. With your processes yeah. here, uh, is that still the case?
1: Um, yeah. Over time, if you leave it out completely that sugar is still going to... Well, it's a sugar extract, right? It, we're only testing at like 4 to 5% alkaloid content. So majority of that extract is the trehalose that we're extracting from the mushroom. Um, that, that sugar by itself is just really hygroscopic. So it just wants to absorb the, sh- uh, the, the moisture out of the air. So yeah, it will absorb moisture just sitting there, but we do take precautions. We either like to jar it up with desiccate packets kind of like how you would with mushrooms or mm. um you know if i'm pouring larger slabs all the slabs get uh, wrapped in parchment paper slipped into a gallon bag and then desiccate packets in the gallon bag but yeah unfortunately that, that's still a issue for all the extracts um even the isolates are susceptible just to breakdown um in the open air that that has more to do with uh, oxidation um but to have a sugar structure that can at least be in open air and all you really have to worry about is moisture, um, kind of seems like a plus to me, you know, it's a little bit, um, easier to store, you know? Um, but yeah.
0: All right. Uh, well, so are there any other parts of this process that have changed that you'd like to cover in this little addendum that we're going to put at the end? Um, yeah, um, I, I mean, just little
1: tweaks. Like, if I went over uh, roto, rotovap parameters, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're working with just methanol now, so it's probably going to be a lower temperature than what I said. You know, probably running it at about 35 Celsius now compared to, like, 40 or 45. Um, but that's just because, you know, working with methanol instead of ethanol. Um, yeah, the majority of the concepts stay the same. You want, like, that anhydrous initial extraction, um, yeah, I haven't really figured out yet if that anhydrous initial extraction denatures the phosphatase, you know, the, 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 the enzyme that breaks down the psilocybin into psilocin, or if it just avoids extracting it either way. I, I know that anhydrously extracted extracts have more shelf stability than water ones over time, just because of that enzyme that that gets pulled along with, um, aqueous extractions. Um, so that's like, you know, that's the biggest first step is, you know get, get the actives away from the mushroom and hydrously and then and then you're safe to use water you know I, I know some people using water as a cleanup step because um, water seems to be more selective even more selective than the methanol so it's like they go in with methanol clean it up with water and then you know you have a nice water soluble extract at the end that's you, you know you, you filter it through like okay sorry you add the water and then you filter it again because you know it it's more selective.
0: Um, so talk to me a little bit about that process to, just to elaborate on that. Uh, when you say you go in with methanol first and then uh you go in with water, are you saying that you're going to take your methanol extract and your essentially your methanol tincture that you have after extracting and then wash that with water? Yeah, that's pretty much what I'm saying. Um, you can even do that before
1: your winterization to get your winterization to drop out even even more. And then you just go on to your filtering process. But, um, yeah, that's exactly what you do. Um, you do that initial extraction with methanol. It it seems to get the actives away from that enzyme and then you're free to use water in the extraction process. If you're really bent on using water in your extraction process, you know, there's a couple downsides to using water. You know, it's a little bit harder to purge out. It's going to take longer to recover, but yes, you can use, uh, gosh, I'd say like 20% water, you know, before your winterization and then winterize it because, okay, so the water really helps with the solubilities too. So like your trehalose and your actives are way more soluble in water than they are in methanol, even more so in cold water and cold methanol, right? So it's a way to work with smaller volumes without having everything fall out. So it's like when you use water, you can make sure that you're getting more of your yield. You're not leaving things behind with like the cold methanol winterization. you know, if you push things too cold, you'll start to see sugars drop out too. But that's all they are. They're just sugars. They're inactives. But using water helps everything dissolve. It's a little bit more selective. But, you know, the downside is that it's harder to purge.
0: It's harder to recover. It's just a little slower to work with. Understood. Yeah. Okay, great. Anything else you got to add for us? It's a lot like cannabis, these extracts. It's a lot like cannabis.
1: You can slow crash out, you know, sugar diamonds. You can pour sheets of shatter. You can make really gnarly looking RSO. You know, it's like, depending on how you treat the extract, you can get a lot of these similar textures that extractors are used to it's the same, but different compared to cannabis. You know, it really feels like we're doing cannabis round two. You know, I get a lot of people approaching me, telling me, Hey, that shatter reminds me of Oh nine. Like we're doing this again. You know, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm glad it's nostalgic for some people, but this is my first go around. I'm a fairly young guy. And I'm like, I get to carve my way in some extract making. It's fun.
0: Nice. Well, I can only imagine where it's going to be in the next few years as, uh, as you continue to work on it and others continue to work on it. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate you coming back on to uh, make the addendums and, and let us know your most recent and uh, relevant processes to all of this stuff. I find it super interesting. I'm sure the listeners also find it super interesting. And, and again, I really appreciate you coming back on to, to clarify these, these little tweaks to your process. No problem. All right. Well, uh, Dinkelberg, if people want to reach back out to you, is the contact info you gave me the first time around still the best?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Dinkelberg on Instagram. That's Dinkelberg with a three and no E. Um, the Future 4200 Forum. I'm there. Um, Backcountry Cultures. Uh, we have a contact us part if you want to reach out for consultations or you know, a large stainless socks lit, email me there. Um, yeah, I'm pretty available.
0: So that's batcountrycultures.com. Yes, it is. All right. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for coming back on the Modern Extractor. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks again to Dinkelberg for joining us today. You can find him on Instagram at Dinkelberg. That's at D-I-N-K-L-B-3-R-G. As always, if you want to hear about something specific on this show, let me know. Email me, jason at modernextractor.com. Make sure to follow the show on Instagram at the underscore modern underscore extractor. If you guys are digging what I'm doing here, show me some love. Please leave me a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. The more subscribers and better reviews we get, the better guests I can keep booking for you here in the future. Make sure to give Eco Green Industries a call next time you need some high-quality solvents or extraction-grade gas. Use promo code MODX, M-O-D-E-X, for 10% off your first order. Stay tuned for next week, where we'll be joined by Breaking Dabs. I'm really excited for this one. I've been reading posts by Breaking Dabs since I first got into extraction and distillation. He's an absolute wealth of knowledge. He also didn't want to record a remote interview, so I turned my guest room into a makeshift recording studio, set up two mics, and had a really long chat with him about his techniques and the greater business in general. It was a lot of fun, and it'll also be a multi-episode interview. A big thanks to the guys at Alt Powerhouse Studios in Barcelona for the hospitality and for letting me record my intros and outros for these interviews during my time here. You guys are awesome. Thank you to of Vanegas for handling business on the show's social media, and a shout-out to the New Fools for bringing the funk to the Mod X theme song. Thanks again to everybody for tuning into The Modern Extractor. New episodes are out every Tuesday. I'm Jason Showered. Let's talk soon.